to our next episode on Dialogi Patristica, the podcast of the Center for Ancient Christian Studies. So in this episode, I, Sean Wilhite, sit down with professor and colleague Luke Stamps of California Baptist University, uh, somewhat to discuss his interest in dogmatics, patristic theology, and other various topics. And so we hope you enjoy this discussion. Today we're joined with uh, Dr. Luke Stamps. Luke is currently a professor of Christian studies and a fellow colleague at the California Baptist University. And so, and so Luke, has, Luke has published a number of articles in the field of systematic theology and more focused upon issues related to Christology and Trinitarianism. Uh, Luke's research interests include that of systematic theology, uh, Christology, Baptist traditions, as well as patristic theology. Uh, his dissertation entitled Thy Will Be Done, which is a dogmatic defense of diothelitism uh, in light of recent monothelite proposals. Uh, and so in this dissertation, he interacts with some patristic and some modern traditions, uh, really as it entertains the two will and single will controversy. So Luke, it's good to be with you. Great. Great to be with you, Sean. Yeah, so maybe maybe before we begin, let's let's just hear a little bit more about you, and uh, maybe kind of just peel the curtain back on why um, you garnered an interest in systematic theology, and maybe move towards uh, your interest in patristic theology. So there, maybe your journey, some key books, some key thinkers along the way. Sure, um, I guess my interest in theology um, really started to take off in college when I was a student at Auburn University was involved in a really good church, a uh, pastor who had lots of books. And so um, I sort of got in uh, to theology through some more popular authors, uh, the you know classics like Knowing God by J.I. Packer and um, The Cross of Christ by John Stott. Um, and, and so really gained a, a keen interest in theology um, through those more popular um sort of gateway drugs, you know, into, into theology. Um, and then of course, when I went to seminary at at Southern seminary, uh, in Louisville, um, I I was interested from the beginning, uh, I think in doing a PhD. So even as I started my master's, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do it in though. I, Mm -hmm. I was considering, um, New Testament Hmm. church history, systematic, um, but really from the first semester, um, taking systematic theology, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I had a, um, a draw to it. Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so yeah, the, my time in, in, um, during my master's, I took all of my electives in systematic theology, mm-hmm. uh, in preparation for a PhD in systematics. So I was reading, reading at that time, you know, some of the, some of our, um, you know, better known evangelical systematicians, um, Kevin Van Hooser, uh, Mike Horton, uh, sort of gave me a, a feel for evangelicals approaching the discipline. Um, and then, of course, my own professors um, at seminary, uh, Steve Wellam, Bruce Ware, Greg Allison, and others um, who showed me, you know, what, what an evangelical approach to systematics looks like. Yeah, no, no, that's great. And and you, you kind of op- open this up a little bit. Maybe talk a little bit about your dissertation and the time that you spent within the Christological discussions. 
and especially as it kind of intersects the early Christology debate mm-hmm. of the the single wills of Christ versus the two wills of Christ, and maybe bring our listeners up to speed on that. So maybe define some of the problems okay. and what's at stake with that. Sure. Um, what got me interested in the topic um, was some recent um, departures from the received Orthodox view that Christ has two wills. So the the, the the Council of Chalcedon, of course, the high watermark um, in the Patristic era for um, you know, this classic uh, Christology. Christ is one person with two natures, uh, and so on. That that didn't solve all the issues that the church needed to wrestle with. So over the the next uh, couple of centuries after that, the church was still wrestling with uh, other issues related to. Um, Nestorianism, you know, was, was continuing to, to, to rear its head. Um, uh, but then in, the, in the, the lead up to the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the issue was, uh, does Christ have one will or two? So, we, you know, the broadly uh, received uh, orthodoxy uh, in, in the era uh, accepted that uh, Christ has two natures. Uh, but the question is, what sort of where does the will belong? Does it belong in the uh, in the nature and the one, uh, um, the two natures of Christ, or does it belong uh, at the level of, of personal properties, the, the person of Christ? And so uh, the church settled that debate in the Sixth Ecumenical Council uh, in the seventh century, uh, determining that Christ has two wills, one divine and one human, according to his two natures. And that was received as orthodoxy um, throughout the Middle Ages and, and the Reformation era, post Reformation era. Um, it really was only with the rise of um, liberal, Protestant liberalism and, and then canonic Christology uh, in Germany and on the British Isles that that view was called into question. Uh, and then in more recent decades, some evangelical theologians and, and philosophers have also questioned the, the, the Orthodox two wills view. And so that, that it was those, it, it was, um, those authors, um, those those philosophers and theologians who were calling in a question that sort of piqued my interest in it. You know, we have these evangelical philosophers out there uh, calling into question an ecumenical council. That sounds like uh, an interesting departure. Let's explore that. So mm-hmm. that sent me back to the tradition. Um, uh, I didn't. I actually didn't start with the the seventh century, but went went all the way back into the second, third, fourth centuries, uh, and and noticed that there were some uh, precursors uh, to the to the later debate. You know, it would be anachronistic to, to sort of read the 7th century debate back into those earlier centuries. Uh, but at the same time, you know, the church was wrestling with Apollinarianism in the 4th century. Uh, the, this idea that the, the word, or the logos, um, sort of takes the place of uh, the, the human spirit of Jesus, uh, which ended up with a kind of one-will Christology that Apollinaris uh, and others were espousing. And so when Gregory of Nazianzus is reacting against Apollinaris, uh, he's affirming something close to what would later be the two wills position. So it's interesting to see those uh, those earlier developments uh, not, not fully fleshed out. You know, they're not, they're not dealing with the precise question uh, that the monothelites uh, raised uh, in the 7th century. But so you're, you're, you're seeing that the development from that uh, th- those earlier centuries uh, that would then, you know, play out 
uh, in, in the debates in, of the 7th century. So, of course, I looked at Maximus the Confessor, who's the, uh, the great defender of orthodoxy on this point, um, and, then, and then saw how that view was, how the two wills view was uh, sort of standardized uh, in the medieval period. I looked at a couple of, um, a couple of the medievals, uh, John of Damascus in the east and Thomas Aquinas in the west, as they uh, consolidated that, that um, earlier two wills um, uh, tradition. And then that, all that was sort of background to what I did. The bulk, the bulk of my historical section was uh, wrestling with uh, the two wills uh, developments of four reformed theologians, uh, starting with Calvin, uh, then looking at the Baptist theologian John Gill, uh, and then the American theologian uh, William G.T. Shedd, and then the 20th century Scottish theologian Thomas Torrance. And so seeing how in, in their own distinctive ways, uh, for their own distinctive purposes and tied to their own distinctive Christological programs, they were uh, re receiving and reaffirming uh, the wisdom of the, the classical view, the two wills view. And basically, uh, to, to, to sum it up, I, in my last chapter, I um, tried to show that that tradition rooted in the earliest centuries, really, uh, that then developed uh, through patristic medieval reformation, post-reformation, even the 20th century, that that two wills position um, is much to be preferred over the newer uh, innovations that, that seek to uh, discard it and to re rehabilitate the one will view. So that's a long answer, but that, that yeah. you know, it, it's, it, this is the nature of systematics in some sense. You, 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 you have to be a, a jack of all trades and master of none. So mm. uh, I'm not sure that anything I did his, in the historical work was was groundbreaking necessarily, but uh, hopefully was um, uh, an exercise in what uh, uh, the late John Webster refers to as a theology of retrieval. Mm. Mm. So you're you're sort of mining the theological arguments of the past uh, in order to. Um, help you restate a theological position in the present. Yeah, no, 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 that's helpful. And it, and it seems as if you're, you're also kind of providing the theological narrative in, in, in kind of showing that the tradition is continuing as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe, maybe in, in some of these more recent discussions, uh, Trinitarianism, Trinitarianism has kind of been brought up again, um, in, in some, some discussions and, and maybe if you can, uh, with uh, kind of the, the the Christology discussions that you that you did in your dissertation, and some of the Trinitarian discussions within an antiquity, uh, can you kind of describe for us what is kind of classic Christology, classic Trinitarianism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so those two are related. Obviously, um, we, we tend to to separate them, but there's a sense in which the the debate in the fourth century. Um, was a Christological debate, right? I mean, that, that's, that, that's the, we think of the Trinity when we think of the fourth century, uh, but obviously that the debate was who is the Lagos? You know, what is his status with regard to the Father? And then, of course, the, the Holy Spirit as well. Um, so the classical view, the view that was uh, formalized in the first two ecumenical councils, Nicaea and Constantinople I, um, is, is, is a clear affirmation that the three divine persons share in numerically one essence, the, the one divine essence. So the language of, of homoousios with reference to the Son, 
Um, some at Constantinople wanted to affirm the same of the spirit, uh, Gregory Nazianzus in particular, uh, and certainly the, 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 the creed, um, while it stopped short of using homoousios of the spirit, is a clear affirmation that he is, you know, together with the Father and Son to be worshipped and glorified, so a clear affirmation of, of his deity. Um, so the, the three divine persons share in the one divine essence, um, and then the, the question is what distinguishes the divine persons the only thing that distinguishes the divine the divine persons, according to the pro-Nicene fathers, are the relations of origin. So the father is ingenerate, um, unbegotten. Uh, the son is eternally generated or begotten of the father, and then uh, the spirit eternally proceeds from the father. Uh, and then, of course, that was later revised in the West to include and the son, right? Yeah, the, the, yeah, yeah. the controversy. Um, so that's that's the classic view of, of the Trinity, one divine essence uh-huh. uh, or being, uh, and then the three distinct relations uh, within within that, that shared divine essence. And then, of course, classic Christology, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, um, uh, is, is especially marked by the Chalcedonian definition um, that affirms that the, the second person of the Godhead... Uh, is a singular person, but he has two distinct natures uh, that that are um, not to be uh, separated. Uh, they're they're united, uh, but they're also not to be confused. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that was the the statement that came from uh, the Council of Chalcedon. Yeah, no, no, no. That's helpful. And maybe to kind of piggyback on your statement that you mentioned about Webster, so. so Maybe bring Nicaea, um, some, some of the other uh, ecumenical councils, maybe some, some out of Chalcedon, maybe bring those into modern Trinitarian formulation. How do we do that? Kind of what's the role in, mm-hmm. in, in, in the, those traditions for current theological formation? Right. I think that's a especially acute, especially acute question for evangelicals. Um, because sometimes we just don't know what, you know, what, what role yeah. do these ancient, mm-hmm. uh, creeds and councils play in our ongoing uh, theologizing? Are we beholden to them? Um, you know, do we simply honor the uh, sort of the spirit of, of the, the creeds and councils and we're free then to, to develop um, things that, that either move on from it or, or, or even stray from it? Um, I am uh, of the persuasion that... Um, that if we were to depart from, a, you know, an ecumenical council, one of the seven ecumenical councils of the early church, uh, we would, as Oliver Crisp put it, we would need very good theological reason to do so, right? And so that it's a very high bar. Huh. I'm committed to sola scriptura, um, so in theory, um, uh, I suppose we could uh, con- consider the possibility that Scripture would uh, revise or refine. Uh, these ancient mm-hmm. councils, um, and certainly that you know the reformers did something like that with the seventh ecumenical council uh, that that affirmed the veneration of icons, mm-hmm. um, and and Calvin especially, um, you know, helped to recover uh, the second commandment right mm-hmm. for Protestants that, mm-hmm. that there's a danger of of images there. Although when you look at at the the, the Christological argument that was made by 
John of Damascus mm-hmm. and others in that controversy. Um, there is something to be said about the the uh, the the incarnation as a as a game changer, right? right? right. They weren't trying to the, the icons are not trying to um, uh, image the divine essence or something like that. But but it, but once God becomes incarnate, then um, then you know it, it would be a in some sense, it would be a denial of his humanity to totally forbid images, and and I'm sympathetic with that. Uh, so I don't think, um, for instance, it's 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 wrong to. Uh, this is kind of a rabbit trail, but I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think it's wrong yeah. necessarily to have you know children's storybook Bibles with pictures of Jesus or hmm. or, or or you know even you know images um, in in a, in a church sanctuary that that might that might picture. Um, scenes from from Jesus life and ministry uh, I think we have to be extremely careful there mm-hmm. right? but I, I guess I, I I'm somewhat sympathetic to, to the the use of images uh, of Christ that that, that that would not be idolatrous but that's you know that's another conversation but you can see how Protestants have wrestled with the um, the, the the role and authority the place of the councils really from the very beginning. Calvin, you know, uh, um, famously uh, had questions about uh, eternal eternal generation. I certainly affirmed eternal generation of the Son, but 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 in a way that sought very much to, to affirm also what what he called the you know the autotheos that, that, that Christ is uh, God of Himself that He's He doesn't. Um, derive his essence from the father but but that those are, are the personal relations that he, he in a sense derives his personhood um, from the father so so there's development even there even with even with the Nicene tradition uh, there's reflection on uh, how how we affirm that in light of scripture now I, I think you know to be fair I, I, don't, I don't think that Calvin was necessarily right about that um, uh, this is not my area of expertise so I'm not a Calvin mm-hmm. scholar um, but as I understand it, I, 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 I'm, I'm happy to affirm that the, the traditional understanding of eternal generation. But you see that mm-hmm. there's there's always been some tension within Protestantism, and especially once you move into evangelicalism, with where do we stand in terms of, of these ancient um, mm-hmm. creeds and councils. But as I said earlier, I, I, I think that they, they, these, these should be the default position. Um, and, and while we might say... In theory, that that they could be revised, um, it would that's a that's an extremely high bar, right? Because these statements have been tested over the better part of two millennia, and so that's uh, you know. And it, it, so, if we were going to revise them, it wouldn't we would we wouldn't want to do so uh, lightly, and we also wouldn't do so simply as detached individuals. Whatever our view of uh, ecclesiology is even, even a, you know a, a sort of low church Baptist like myself. It would take more than just my own private interpretation of Scripture in order to overturn an ecumenical council. Uh, it would take you know a, 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 a local church you know reflecting on that, and then in our context you know associations of churches. Um, and so it's not the kind of thing that we would. We're not just sort of, in my view, we're not just sort of free to take it or leave it. Um, 
So, yeah, yeah no, 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 that, that's, that's, that's really helpful to hear. And you, you kind of touched on it a little bit, uh, but the notion of theological method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, if I can, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but maybe, maybe restructure how I describe this. But it, it's not as if you're saying only Bible, no tradition, but you're also not suggesting tradition trumps the scriptures. And right. so what what are you kind of suggesting? Maybe or is it a via media? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, the, 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 I, always, I always turn back to the categories of, of um, Heiko Obermann, who's a medieval and Reformation um, historian. <laughs> and in one of his books, I can't recall which, maybe Forerunners of the Reformation, um, he he talks about uh, tradition one and tradition two, right? So mm-hmm. in his in his uh, understanding, you you had in the earliest centuries an understanding of tradition develop really really developing from the New Testament. That you know, as Paul talks about the traditions that were passed on to Timothy and so on, uh, and then certainly in uh, the second century controversies with Gnosticism. Uh, Irenaeus, you know, building on this idea of, of the received tradition from from the apostles and their successors, um, and the, and tradition in that first sense was uh, for Obermann, uh, he 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 speaks about tradition one as uh, an interpretive guide for understanding scripture, for understanding the right interpretation of scripture. Um, but Obermann also talks about a, a, a view of tradition that that arose uh, later in the medieval period, um, he calls tradition two, that sees tradition as a second source of revelation alongside scripture. So that's where you get, you know, uh, doctrines like um, uh, the Immaculate Conception uh, and, and, and uh, the, the, a lot of the Mariology that, that, that you see in, in, in uh, Roman Catholicism and in Eastern Orthodoxy in some cases, um, that, that those things came from an extra biblical tradition uh, that was seen to be a, a complement to, huh. to to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, as Protestants, we want to opt for the first, you know, the first version of tradition. I, some some have sort of tongue in cheek suggested that evangelicals operate with a tradition zero, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> approach that where where there is no place for for tradition, even as an interpretive guide, but uh, but that we're just sort of simply alone. Mm-hmm. in the corner with our Bibles and the Holy Spirit, and that's enough, right? Um, but the, the, the view that I would advocate for sees tradition as authoritative, that, that it's not merely a suggestion or, or merely what happens very often in evangelical theology is, is we simply mine the tradition for support for our own already arrived at conclusions, right? So the tradition um, history becomes usable to us. Uh, I think that's that's not what I'm suggesting either, but that we we should see the tradition as derivatively authoritative. Uh, its authority is derived from its conformity to Scripture first and foremost. Um, also through the interpretive consensus of the church. So Thomas Oden, uh, who's a Protestant, um, who, who has very much helped um, Protestants recover a sense of tradition. Talks about uh, the 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 authority of tradition in, in evangelical terms that we we receive tradition because it is the the consensus of um, of the church that the, the, these are this is the interpretive consensus of the church so that he calls it the consensual tradition 
Um, and so we, we, we can appeal to the tradition um, because it, it is the, you know, again, the consensus of, of Christians over millennia, you know, um, and how they interpreted the scripture. So, so they do have a kind of authority under the ultimate authority of scripture. So sola scriptura um, is, is still operative, right? Um, that, that, it, that it is the, the sole final ultimate authority for all matters of faith and practice. Uh, but under scripture, these interpretive um, guides, we could say, uh, uh, to the degree that they conform to scripture and express the consensus of the church, they also have a kind of authority over our interpretation. So I think that's important for evangelicals to, to recover in, in many mm-hmm. ways. This is not foreign to our own tradition. Um, uh, this is, I think, the view of the Reformers and the view of, of you know, every Baptist who ever wrote or affirmed a confession of faith, right? There's this sense that, that not that the confessions or, or the creeds have, um, you know, a, a superior authority to Scripture, but, but they, they simply state what uh, we believe the Scripture teaches. And so they, they certainly have a, a role to play in our interpretation, in our theologizing, in our cooperation with, uh, you know, as, as Baptists, we think about, you know, with whom do we associate and cooperate? Well, uh, the creeds and confessions have served as, as a guide to that. And then within the local church as well, who can um, be a member here? Who can serve as, as, as a pastor or deacon here? Well, it's, you know, the, these confessional uh, guidelines don't trump scripture, but they help express what we believe scripture teaches. And so, um, you know, even the old, even the old trope, no creed, but the Bible is a creed, right? right, that right. Those, those words are not found in scripture, uh, no creed, but the Bible, right? But so that you're affirming a belief in extra biblical language about the Bible and, and its role in, in your theology. So there's no escaping the restatement of, of, uh, what we believe in the forms of creeds and confessions, unless we just simply read the scriptures. But even then, we're reading a translation that involves interpretation. Right. And so uh, there, you can't avoid the doing of theology. You can't avoid interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so tradition has a role um, huh. in helping us adjudicate those kinds of, of matters interpretively. Huh. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's, that's extremely, extremely helpful. And, and maybe if I can just ask one more question as it relates to classical Trinitarianism, but I want to try to develop uh, kind of a more complex question that's related to your field of dogmatics, but maybe joining it to another discipline. So, so maybe if we consider just a, uh, Augustine for, for a moment, and, and so in his work, De Trinitate, uh, this work reflects a 5th century work. Often it's, it's been suggested that it was written over 15 uh, to 16 years, from 400 to 416. And so it, so it reflects some form of pro-Nicaea theology in, 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 in that it comes after Nicaea. But it precedes the Council of Ephesus in 431, and it precedes the, the next uh, ecumenical council, of council uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 431. Uh, 51. But but as we as we read this, um, especially books one and two in particular, there's some type of Trinitarian matrix that's that's going on in in the patristic world that where there's reflection on scripture. Uh, so even hermeneutics factors into this, where it seems like Augustine is using Philippians 
uh, Philippians 2 as some type of hermeneutical lens to read some of the Christological texts in the Gospels. He touches on the uh, inseparable operations, the eternal generation of the Son, the co-equality of the Son and Spirit, as as well as more. And so even in book one and two, it's just this web of kind of this Trinitarian matrix. And and so maybe a a question that joins your discipline of dogmatics to the discipline maybe of history or or kind of the development of, of, of theology. And, and ha- when we look at the patristic theology, how do we do that while keeping a keen eye on its historical development? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I'm not a historian. I'm not a patristic scholar per se, right? I'm, I'm a systematician with an interest in history and, and, and in patristic theology. Uh, but this is a question that those of us who are non-specialists uh, in this field have to bear in mind that the tradition is not flat, um, but it's, it's, um, it has contours and developments. Um, so I mentioned earlier, you know, that, that, that I, I see some, um, sort of proto two wills Christologies in, mm-hmm. in the earliest centuries, you know, even as far back as, as, as Irenaeus in the second century. Uh, and then certainly in the fourth century with Gregory, um, but it, we have to be careful, as I said earlier, not not to read those guys anachron- anachronistically. They weren't dealing with the precise questions uh, of the seventh century, uh, and the same is true for Augustine. Um, he's not dealing with the the precise questions of 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 the 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 later fifth uh, century. Um, although when you read his his works, you know on the Trinity and. Um, you know, even even his his shorter handbook on theology. I mean, you see you see again a, a version of what would develop into um, the two natures uh, Christology uh, that came later. So there, he he's not saying anything that contradicts. But at the same time, he's not he's not the church is not there yet. They're not they're not dealing wrestling with um, the the same set of questions, and so. This, I think this is especially this 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 um, the importance of, of noting historical context is especially important once we move back behind the fourth century right because a lot of people will, will go to the second third uh, centuries and and seek to again kind of seeing the past as a usable commodity will point to particular authors um, who, who may support a particular view of subordinationism or something like that well that you don't want to do that, right? You, you don't want, even even some of the most respected voices uh, in the in the second and third centuries um, aren't speaking with the same kind of, of precision um, as the fourth century fathers are, and so you, you can't just simply say, "Well, let's, I, I'm appealing to uh, the church fathers," mm-hmm. or "I'm appealing to the early church." Well, which one? Which which you know which century? Sometimes which decade? Yeah, which right? one and where? Right. Yeah, I mean, right. so some, sometimes. Um, you're looking not just in terms of centuries, but even at decades and years, right? You know, mm-hmm. in terms of the way these controversies were developing. And so, you know, someone like um, Gregory of Nazianzus or, or St. Augustine are part of this. It's an organic development of orthodoxy. So it's not as if it's unrelated or, or, or contradictory, um, but, but it, it grows, right? There's a, there's a development of doctrine uh, that grows, um, and builds upon itself, and so we have to be careful uh, 
to avoid anachronism and and to remember the 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 historical context i mean sometimes it's you know even the political context is important right i mean you have people changing their positions because of 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 differing uh, political ramifications especially um you know on, on around these these councils that were um that were convened to address these issues but of course the, those political the, that political context doesn't um uh kind of cancel out the the real biblical and theological issues that were being raised i mean that's that's the mistake a lot of people make is they you know um adopt a, a kind of historicist approach to church history where the the, the these controversies are are explained entirely in terms of historical and political and ecclesiastical conflict um and and, and instead of noting that those that was part of it that's part of the the background but also there were real theological issues about uh, the nature of 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 scriptural affirmation uh that that we need to carefully attend to yeah that that's 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 real helpful um yeah so if you don't mind let's totally switch topics altogether sure. uh, maybe just uh, just real briefly and then we'll close with the final kind of question around mentoring and and uh uh, if you can, can you share with us kind of what you're currently working on right now? Maybe small articles that you're considering writing or currently mm-hmm. engaged in. Maybe some future publications that are kind of in the works. Or yeah, um, so um, for this this um, fall, I'll be participating in uh, the Scripture and Doctrine Seminar, uh, which is relatively new. This is only the second year. Um, for the Scripture and Doctrine Seminar. Many may be familiar with the Scripture and Hermeneutics Seminar, which has been ongoing for a couple of decades now, um, and has produced lots of great work um, on the nature of hermeneutics and theological interpretation. Uh, but as a parallel for that, uh, Craig Bartholomew, who's the, uh, the, the, the dean of, of the Scripture and Hermeneutics Seminar, wanted to um, create um, a parallel um, scripture and Doctrine Seminar. They would be approaching some of the same issues, um, theological interpretation namely, but sort of from the other direction. So if the Scripture and Hermeneutics Seminar is approaching it, you know, not entirely, but but in, in large part from Biblical studies, um, the Scripture and Doctrine Seminar is approaching that those the similar set of issues from, from a dogmatic perspective. Mm-hmm. And so um, I'll be helping to uh, along with Craig to to frame that conversation, We're, we have some some great speakers lined up um, this this fall at the Scripture and Doctrine Seminar, and the topic is going to be divine action in Hebrews, especially keying in on the ongoing priesthood of Christ. Oh, great! And so there's lots of lots of issues going on there, right? Right. The, the nature of divine action, um, focusing on one particular book, and then especially. Uh, picking out this this yeah. idea of, of Christ's ongoing humanity and his priest, priestly role. Right. So I'll be working on that, um, on those that set of issues uh, through the summer and fall. Um, uh, working on on a, a an edited uh, project uh, with a couple other guys, um, Chris Morgan and Matt Emerson, on um, Baptists and the tradition. So a lot of the issues we talked about earlier, right. how, how do those issues um, 
play into a, a particularly Baptist theology. Many would say they don't, right? I mean, that, that Baptists have had have been uh, traditionally impoverished in, in, in some centuries and in some sectors, uh, but, but, but that book is going to be pulling in some key Baptist voices um, on how Baptists can situate ourselves uh, not as, as a, a kind of separatist movement outside uh, the tradition, but as a renewal movement within the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Um, and so issues you know, related to the creeds, um, related to classical Trinitarianism, Christology, related to liturgy and worship, spirituality, uh, and so on. So that, I'm mean, really excited about that book. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's going to take a bit to, to, you know, to pull it all together, but that, right. yeah. that's one that, that I've been working on. Another thing that I'm especially interested in is, um, the theology of Thomas Torrance, who I mentioned earlier, I'd written, I'd written a bit on him in my dissertation. Uh, Torrance is, uh, I think in, 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 within evangelical circles anyway, is a neglected voice. Um, there's a, an interest in Torrance, um, you know, at the academic level, um, you know, there's an international, um, appetite, you know, for, uh, the study of Torrance, who was a student of Karl Barth and, 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 and one of his earliest interpreters and who translated, uh, the, the church dogmatics into English along with, uh, Jeffrey Bromley. And so there's, there is an academic interest in Torrance, but evangelicals, um, at least in my view, haven't, uh, sufficiently engaged Torrance. And so, um, I'm, I'm working on, uh, some, some material there that hope, hopefully will develop. Um, but you know, Torrance is a, is a, a massive figure. Many consider him the most, um, important English language theologian of the 20th century. And, and he's largely unknown you know, in, in, in uh, evangelical <laughs> circles. So lots to, lots to uh, disagree with with Torrance at points, you know, I don't, I'm not, not a, I'm not a Torrancean, you know, uh, <laughs> um, in the sense that I, I don't feel the need to defend Torrance at every turn. Cause there's some, there's some issues where, where I think he was wrong, but his theology is so uh, rich and there's so much to appreciate, uh, especially related to, um, some of the same concerns we're going to be looking at in the scripture and doctrine seminar. The, the idea of, the significance, the saving significance of the humanity of Christ, uh, that that the, the vicarious humanity of Christ, as as Torrance puts it, um, uh, boy, that's that's a, a rich and and uh, encouraging, you know, as a as a, as a as a Christian, you know, thinking about how Christ in His humanity um, lives, believes, obeys, dies, is raised, intercedes through our common humanity in our place as our representative and substitute. Of course, he's building on, on Calvin and others there, but, but that, that theme especially um, is prominent in Torrance. And so there's just there's a lot to appreciate there, and, and I'm uh, interested in sort of bringing him into our conversation theologically yeah, no, as well. Yeah, no, that's that, that's great to hear. We, we definitely look forward to uh, kind of seeing the final product of, of those works. Uh, if we can, maybe just maybe just one more one more question here. Um, so something that the the center is 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 very much geared towards just helping students. How how do we help 
kind of the junior scholar, the the master student, and and I think even now in our own context, the the bachelor student that maybe has caught the bug. Uh, but let's just kind of envision: you have a few students that um, you know that they, they're your students. That your their ear um, is kind of open to your voice, whether it's a bachelor student or it's kind of a, a doctoral student or even one that's kind of just out and kind of trying to navigate the field of dogmatics, uh, trying to navigate in the field of scholarship and kind of, if you had two minutes to kind of mentor them, what, what would you leave them with? Mm. Uh, read the classics, um, uh, for, for whatever reason, uh, even in our seminaries, our sort of canon of books, uh, leans more toward the modern era and, and even towards kind of the, the most recent controversy, you know, that, that, that has to be dealt with. And, and often we're engaging in those um, more recent conversations without uh, deep roots in the tradition. And so I, I know that, you know, for those who are interested in the center, uh, they're not, that, that's going to resonate with them, I suspect, that uh, we need to be reading the classics, um, you know, preferably in the original languages, if you can get there, right? Um, again, I'm not an expert um, in, in patristic literature in the original languages, but, um, but certainly in, in, we have many good English translations of, of the classical work. So reading the pro-Nicene fathers of the fourth century, reading, um, especially there, re- especially reading Gregory's theological orations, uh, which are right. so rich. Um, and then, you know, reading Augustine and reading, um, Cyril and reading Maximus. And, and then of course I, I have an interest in medieval period as well so so reading Thomas Aquinas uh, reading uh, John of Damascus uh, re- reading those foundational sources um, and I, I forget who who said this one but um, I forget if it was one of my professors or, or, or some somewhere somewhere else I heard this uh, but a church history professor once said that it, it was their goal um, uh, with their students in church history uh, to persuade them that there were Christians between the Apostle Paul and their grandmother, <laughs> right? And so huh. there's 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 yeah. a, a a sense in which we we lack that historical yeah. awareness, and yeah. and we are impoverished by by not having those deep roots in the tradition. Doesn't mean we're always going to agree with the tradition. The tradition doesn't agree with itself, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> there are diverse voices uh, even within the the Christian tradition, but but being conversant with um, these these different authors and these different eras and these different controversies um, will give us the wherewithal to then engage the contemporary debates. Yeah, that's that's definitely helpful. And uh, Luke, we definitely just appreciate you kind of giving uh, a little bit of your time and thankful for your voice. Thanks for having me.